This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. To the meeting and refocus again. Uh, my name is Valerie Bonnet, and I'm the moderator for this panel on strategies for equality in a climate of commercialism. We have an exceptional panel here this morning, and I'm going to introduce them all at once, and then each of them will take about a few minutes for some remarks, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions. Um, there was no politically correct way to introduce our panelists uh, because they're all nationally known, and so I decided to do this alphabetically. So we'll start with Sandy Barber, who, as many of you know, is the Director of Athletics at the University of California, Berkeley. In three short years at the helm, she is over... <laughs> what? I just Well, I guess there's a benefit to having the replay back here from the mics because I missed that. Sorry, Sandy. <laughs> uh, yes, well, unprecedented success. <laughs> In Sandy's three years, uh, Cal has captured six national team titles, 21 individual NCAA championships, and had 25 top 10 finishes. The football team has advanced to three bowl games, secured its first conference championship in 31 years, and set season ticket and attendance records. Sandy was selected the 2006 National Association of Collegiate Women Athletics Administrators Division 1A National Administrator of the Year. She has been named one of the 100 most influential women in business and a 2006 Woman of Distinction in the Bay Area. Sandy's an active member of several uh, national committees uh, and conference committees. Her 25-year career in intercollegiate athletics has seen service as the Deputy Director for Athletics at Notre Dame and as Director of Athletics at Tulane University. Early in her career, Sandy served in coaching and administrative positions at the University of Massachusetts and Northwestern University. As an undergraduate at Wake Forest, she was a four-year letter winner, captain of the field hockey team, and played two seasons of varsity basketball. Please welcome Sandy Barber. <laughs> Uh, Bob Bowlesby needs no introduction here, but he's going to get one anyway. Uh, he was named the Director of Athletics at Stanford in April of 2006, and this was after 15 years at the University of Iowa, where he developed a national reputation for his skill in directing that institution's intercollegiate athletics program. Bob has served on numerous committees, including the NCAA Wrestling Committee, the Special Committee to Review Amateurism, and the Special Committee to Review Financial Conditions in Athletics. Apropos, he recently completed a five-year term on the NCAA Division I Basketball Committee uh, Tournament Committee, which included two years as committee chair. He's also served as, on the executive, as an executive committee member 
with both the NACTA and Division IA Athletic Directors Association, including one year as president of the 1A Directors Group. He was elected chair of the NCAA Olympic Sports Liaison Committee and represented the NCAA as one of two voting members of the United States Olympic Committee. He served on the Secretary of Education's Commission on Opportunity in Athletics. NACTA named Bob the Central Region Athletic Director of the Year and the Sports Business Journal selected him as one of four regional award winners as NACTA Athletics Director of the Year. He hired Iowa's current football coach who has led Iowa to three straight bowl appearances and Iowa's women's and men's basketball teams have advanced to postseason tournament competition in four straight seasons. During Bob's tenure at Iowa, the university enjoyed unprecedented growth in the area of fundraising and facilities. Bob earned his undergraduate degree at Moorhead State University and his graduate degree from the University of Iowa. Please welcome your own athletic director, Bob Bolster. Donna Lopiano is the Chief Executive Officer of the Women's Sports Foundation. The foundation is a charitable educational organization dedicated to ensuring equal access to participation and leadership opportunities for all girls and women in sports and fitness. It is among the top grant-giving public women's funds in the United States, distributing between $500,000 and a million dollars in grants to girls and women's sports programs each year. Donna received her bachelor, bachelor's degree from Southern Connecticut State University and her advanced degrees from the University of Southern California. She has been a college coach of women's and men's volleyball and women's basketball and softball. She was a collegiate athletic program administrator for 23 years, most notably as the director of women's athletics for 18 years at the University of Texas at Austin. As an athlete, she participated in 26 national championships in four sports and was nine-time All-American in softball in which she played on six national championship teams. She's a member of the National Sports Hall of Fame, the National Softball Hall of Fame, the Texas Women's Hall of Fame, and the Connecticut Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, just to name some of the many. Please welcome Donna Lopiano. Each of our panelists is going to make a few minutes of remarks, and then we're gonna go ahead and open up the floor for questions. So we'll start again alphabetically with Sandy Barber. Thank you, Val. I'll uh, <clears throat> be the first one to venture out here and stick my neck out on, the, on this panel. Uh, when I was asked to do this, and I thought about commercialism in college athletics and Title IX, um, I have to tell you, I mean, obviously, I understand commercialism uh, in intercollegiate athletics. And when you think about that, you think about television and you think about corporate sponsorship and you think about amateurism versus professional and, and, and all of those things. And, and, and I have to tell you, I, I took a long time to kind of get my hands around um, how I would, what my few minutes of, of remarks would, would be about. And it's, um, it's really kind of a... Uh, uh, of a, of a, 
a menu of all the things that we've already talked about this morning, but talking specifically about how we find ourselves in this difficult position. Uh, commercialization or commercialism in intercollegiate athletics, the revenue opportunities that we see, particularly on the men's side or lack of them on the women's side, uh, have certainly made it uh, far more difficult and really have complicated beyond belief the, the issue and the problem of how do we right the wrongs of literally hundreds of years. Uh, the identification of the problem is simple. It's already been identified <laughs> this morning. And, and that is, uh, you know, how do we how do we make our programs equitable? Not how do we make them more equitable, how do we ultimately make them equitable? How do we align uh, with, the, with the mission of the university? The solution would be difficult regardless of the context, uh, but the existence of these commercial interests uh, certainly makes it uh, far more difficult. Uh, one of the things I have heard this morning, and I have, have always said that, and, and I know uh, that, that, that all of us in this room uh, promote this to a, to a large degree, and that is that this is not about making our programs equally bad or equally mediocre. This is about making our programs equally good, equally excellent, providing the same benefits, uh, the same opportunities, the same great opportunities uh, that have existed for boys and men uh, forever. Um, the money involved in television contracts, gate receipts, tournament revenues has fueled uh, the investment in resources on the men's side and in hopes of that payoff. Um, all of us who have uh, toiled in this business for any number of years know the, the financial challenges and I believe it was, was mentioned uh, early on this morning about the state of higher education and the, the financial demands and the, the call on, on every dollar. Uh, and again, all that, I'm not providing any, any solutions in those comments, but that is to kind of illuminate uh, the challenge. Uh, there is no perceived or limited uh, perceived payoff on the, on the women's side or in the men's non-revenues, or Olympic sports, or minor sports, whatever label you, you want to put on them. Uh, and that's the part that needs to change. And I do think that, that we are seeing changes. You know, certainly, you look, at, uh, you look at women's basketball, the state of college women's basketball right now, and yeah, we've got a long way to go, but we have seen so many changes. Uh, we have seen so many advances that have occurred there in terms of the interest of, of our communities. And certainly, uh, right here today, sitting on this campus, uh, the Stanford Women's Basketball Program is one that has, has captured a tremendous amount of interest. And I certainly want to thank Tara and Bob for kind of, and, and Ted uh, before Bob for, for setting the bar for us. And, and uh, Cal is trying to, uh, trying to call, crawl up that ladder and, uh, and, uh, and keep pace with them. But, but that also brings, uh, brings a point for me to the fore, which is, um, and I hate to use examples of, of bad, but you know, in this, in this community, um, and, and I know the NFL draft is today, so the Oakland Raiders are busy trying to, uh, to do something about it. I don't know, did anybody know, did they take Jamarcus Russell or? Yeah, they did. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, you look at the Oakland Raiders. They are the worst team last year, the worst team in the NFL, and they draw 58,000 people a game as the worst team in the NFL. 58,000 people, okay, at a ticket price of, you know, probably average ticket price of over $200. And yet we've got two nationally ranked women's basketball teams, and Tara, I love being able to say we've got two now. <laughs> In this area that 
you know, Stanford draws very well, but there's great fluctuation as to maybe how they're playing or who they're playing. And certainly for us, across the bay now, we've got huge fluctuation and we draw the best, yes, when we play Stanford. Um, because you guys bring a lot of people to us. But that's, you know, in looking at that, that's one of the, why is it that the best in America in women's basketball is struggling to meet some minimum numbers and the worst team in the NFL, day in and day out, is drawing, you know, close to 60,000 people. That's, that's our challenge. What's wrong with the expectation that, that has been created in this society? Obviously, there's something wrong. Something has to change. Intercollegiate athletics, uh, and Bob will cringe as I say this, um, we're, we're headed for trouble. And only a small part of that has to do with, with gender equity, has to do with Title IX. Um, now, maybe, you know, maybe that creates the opportunity, but you look at the amateurism professional issues, you look at the place of college athletics on a campus, you look at the kind of resources we're spending in men's and women's programs, um, and, and we're gonna implode. We're going to implode if we don't do something. And I think part of the solution needs to be as we, part of what we look at as we look at trying to, to create um, equality. We can't start over. I wish we could. The answer would be a whole lot easier. We wouldn't have 100 plus years of, of stuff uh, to, to have to work through, tradition to have to go in and, and change. And, and again, I certainly agree with those that say it's not about uh, ill-advised decisions, about reducing men's programs uh, to either create women's opportunities or bring the men down uh, to, to, to where the, the women currently are. Uh, it's a bad business model. Uh, at, uh, at Cal, we have slightly fewer programs than, uh, than Stanford does. We sit at 29. Uh, two of them are profit centers, and 27 of them are cost centers. Uh, it is, it's a bad business model, but that's the point. It's not, it, it's not about business. It's about education, it's about equality, and it's about equity. And how do we take advantage of our society's thirst for competitive sport and, and turn that towards interest in our women's programs. And the fabulous young women, and I obviously come from a college campus perspective, but the fabulous young women on our colleges, our college campuses and the attention that they, they deserve. You know, why can't we maintain the momentum that we see in an Olympic year with soccer and basketball and volleyball and softball and the, and the kind of attention that those teams so richly deserve and that, that they get in large part uh, in those Olympic years. So let me just throw out a couple of, uh, of possibilities and they do mesh, uh, uh, Linda, with a number of the things that, that you uh, threw up there. And, and that is, you know, we need, to, we need to put more resources into marketing our women's programs to create that, that thirst. We need, uh, uh, we need enf enforcement uh, to be stronger so that the gap doesn't get widened, so that we're actually not even correcting what's there, but it's, it's worsening. Uh, leverage interest in the men's programs. Uh, frankly, um, at every place I've been, I do it all the time in terms of fundraising models, in terms of uh, facilities. There is the, the interest in the men's programs uh, needs to be leveraged to help us bring uh, the women's opportunities uh, up to par and, uh, and make sure that the current uh, student athletes in our programs, the treatment of them, the benefits that they are provided um, are, uh, are equitable. Thank you, Sandy. Bob? I, I honestly don't think you saw me cringing when you said that because I, I happen to agree. 
uh, that we're we're headed for some trouble. There isn't any doubt about that, and and it's on a on a variety of fronts. Uh, like Ted, I was a member of the uh, the Secretary's Commission on on Opportunities in Athletics, and uh, uh, many of you were involved in the the hearings and the activities. Uh, I've I've been an AD at at Division One institutions for uh, well. I regrettably stayed almost 30 years uh, at, at three different places, and um, I, I, even now I don't know that I consider myself an expert on Title IX. As in fact, um, I, I learned several things with uh, the presentation uh, earlier. It's uh, it's partly I think because I have never been a part of intercollegiate athletics when women's athletics wasn't a big portion of what we were doing. Um, I, I think that uh, leaves me out of a sense of history that was uh, pre-Title IX. And uh, I, I also had the benefit of working for about uh, 13 years with Christine Grant. And uh, she's obviously been an absolute beacon uh, in, in opportunities for young women. And uh, she's been a great source of information to me. She's been a great source of ideas. Uh, we've had we've had some some uh, epic disagreements on certain aspects of implementation, but the one thing that we agreed about, and uh, and some of the things she's told me over the years have been a little bit hard to believe. Uh, her descriptions of uh, her coaching in Canada and then coming to the United States and finding that the United States was lagging very significantly behind what she'd experienced in Scotland and in Canada uh, relative to opportunities for young women. Uh, some of the things she described in her early years at the University of Iowa, uh, trying to scratch together the resources that it took to field an intercollegiate team uh, in field hockey or, or some other sport were, uh, fr quite frankly, they were embarrassing. Uh, it, it's hard to believe, like it is hard to believe uh, with the, the civil rights movement at large, that it's, it's been less than uh, four decades ago that these things weren't routinely available and that nobody really questioned it very much. Uh, that it, it just wasn't something that was done. It's, it's remarkable. Um, I'm proud of the fact, although I've only been here a short time, that Stanford was one of the, one of the institutions uh, at its inception in 1891 that said, we're going to be 50% women in our, in our student population. Uh, it, one can only imagine how, uh, how radical that must have sounded coming out of Mrs. Stanford's mouth at the time of the founding of this institution. But, uh, but, uh, but equitable they were, and equitable they have been ever since. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons why Stanford has enjoyed a leadership position in, in women's athletics over the years. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about what I consider to be some of the, implica uh, the, the implications of the, the environment of commercialism that, that Sandy described. And I, and I do think that we're, we're headed in, uh, in, a very difficult, uh, in a very difficult direction. I believe, and I've been in this business for for 30 years because I believe that this is all about uh, an educational model. I, I continue to believe, somewhat naively, my colleagues uh, suggest to me, that uh, athletics is the best leadership laboratory that there is available on a college campus. Uh, we're here to educate young people, we're here to work their tails off for four or five years and then they're going to reap the benefits for 40 or 50 years. Uh, I believe 
uh, in my heart that a B student who's had a great experience in some of the best classrooms on this campus uh, is going to be a better employee. And by best classrooms, I mean the ones that have maple floor or grass underfoot or water in the pool or those kinds of places. I, I think we've got wonderful teachers uh, like Tara, like Dick Gould, like so many others that are a part of our program and Sandy's and so many others around the country. I think it's a great environment when you have a, an instructor who is passionate about delivering a message and a student who is thirsty for the knowledge. That's what I think we have in intercollegiate athletics, and it's getting lost in the commercial model in, in large measure. And so um, we are not profit-driven. Uh, I hope we'll never be exclusively profit-driven. Um, but we, we have to be careful about how we reinvest our money, and we, al we haven't always done a good job of that. Uh, I think we haven't done a good job on a local basis, and I, and I don't know that we've done a great job on a systematic basis. Uh, but, I, but I do know the, just exactly what what Sandy said, uh, at, at Iowa, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm more familiar with the numbers there than I am at, here at Stanford uh, because of the short duration, uh, the short tenure, but at Iowa, we, were, we derived 94% of a $70 million budget annually from either directly or indirectly from football and men's basketball. Um, and, and their consumption was, was vastly less than that. Um, I didn't make the model. Um, none, of, none of us up here made the model, but it's the one that's been around for a long time, and um, in, indeed, we have to deal with it. And I, I think how we deal with the redistribution of the assets that are derived from those two sports principally, some, some institutions have other, have other uh, uh, sources of revenue. You may have a big baseball program or a big hockey program or something like that. But, uh, but basically, 1A programs, the ones that Ted described earlier, uh, the BCS institutions, that's where they're, that's where they're getting their money, uh, either directly or indirectly. And, and um, fundamentally, it, it's our job then to uh, take those resources and redeploy them in ways that are fair and equitable and, and that cause all the boats to rise. And, uh, um, Christine and I agreed uh, fundamentally on all occasions about one thing, and that, our, that is that our jobs were to enhance opportunities for young women without diminishing the quality or the quantity of opportunities for young men. And uh, virtually every speaker has said it this morning. Uh, we all agree to it in principle, but uh, when, when it comes budget time, uh, it's, it's much more difficult to deal with at a practical level. You know, you, you look at uh, what just happened at James Madison University, and, and I can tell you that there are no winners in that circumstance. Uh, none of the boats rose. Uh, we, we lost a whole bunch of competitive opportunities uh, at an institution that has 17,000 students, has a $350 million budget, uh, is in a high population area, and my guess is uh, there, there could have been another outcome. And yeah, that's easy to say from Stanford. I, I recognize that. But I haven't always been here, and I've faced lots of budget problems over the years. And I know that you really do have to be entrepreneurial and innovative and, and energetic about how you deal with these things. Uh, I've never been involved in the discontinuation of a sport. And, uh, and I've been involved with the, with the implementation of, of a number of sports, um, all, all women's sports. But uh, it, uh, the, the, the discontinued sports in the grand scheme of things don't cost very much. 
and one of the things that came out of the, the commission process that we underwent was that uh, uh, we, we ended up gravitating around, uh, as I recall, it was between 20 and 30 initiatives and recommendations that were going to be made to, the, uh, to OCR and, and to the Dep uh, Department of Education, excuse me. And uh, three-quarters of those, uh, including one that said uh, the elimination of men's sports was, was not a, uh, a satisfactory approach to, uh, to uh, reaching proportionality or, or complying with any of the three prongs, um, three-quarters of them were adopted unanimously. And, and yet only four or five that I know of have even have been implemented. It's, it's unfortunate. It makes, makes all of us that were on the commission feel like we spent a lot of time um, you know, working through a process that, uh, that was less productive than it should have been. Uh, and I want to touch just a little bit on, on the, the issue of, of, of women in, in athletics in general. And I, I think it has a, it has a, there's an element of commercialism about it because of the, uh, the escalation in the, in the value of some of the coaching positions. But uh, we, we need, even in, uh, in the situation of myself where my entire career is post-Title IX, uh, we need more women in athletics. We meet, need more uh, mentors. We need good, more good role models. We need to put in place uh, programs like the one we have here at Stanford, and I didn't have anything to do with putting it together, but the, the Leland Internship Program, named in honor of, of Ted and funded by a, a donor, um, that this year has, has two young women, outstanding young prospects as professionals, and uh, we need to do more of that to try and encourage young women to uh, stay involved as administrators and the coaches because uh, it, it, is, it is vitally important. And, and Dina Evans has done uh, uh, some significant research on uh, what the challenges are for young women to being in coaching and particularly to staying in coaching. And uh, it, unfortunately, uh, her research is right on target but doesn't deliver as many viable alternatives as any of us would like. And uh, that, that isn't to be critical of what she's done. She's, she's done a great job of identifying the legitimate issues and the real issues and the recurring issues. Uh, but uh, like having to come to grips with the budget elements of, of program expansion, uh, there, there aren't a lot of easy answers as to how one might go about uh, keeping young women uh, as, as career professionals in uh, intercollegiate athletics. And so, uh, you know, the, 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 it's all about participation and quality of life and the student-athlete experience. And, and uh, you know, the one thing that, uh, that I, I want to close with is that the, there, there is, uh, I think it's correct, that uh, we don't want to spend a lot of time beating dead horses. Um, Ted mentioned the issue of football, and, and I want to mention it again. Um, football at one time had no uh, limits on scholarships. Um, then, they had, then they were at 120, and then they were at 105, and then they were at 95, and now they're at 85, and reasonable people could disagree as to whether or not it should go down from there. Um, but, but I will tell you this, um, there isn't a president in, the, in America that's going to stand up to a football program like the one at Alabama that drew 92,000 people to its spring game. Um, that, it's beaten a dead horse. We, we may be able to make incremental progress. Perhaps uh, we can make progress on staying in a hotel on Friday night or finding some ways to carve out expenses. There's no question that coaching salaries are completely out of control. 
there, there is no question about that. But uh, Miles Brand has said, university presidents have said, uh, we, we don't believe we can get an antitrust exemption from Congress. Uh, we, we don't plan to spend our, our uh, legislative chips in trying to accomplish that. And uh, it's going to be very difficult to unring the bell on salaries. And um, there, there are, it would be wonderful if we could just say, hey, everybody's going to make uh, this many dollars and away we go. Um, it isn't going to work. It's a non-starter. Uh, we may be able to make some incremental progress. But, uh, but together, we ought to accept that and, and figure out a way to, to slow it, to control it, to flatten the trends, to do everything we can. Uh, but it's, it's been this model for a long time. The one thing that Title IX has not done is it's not changed the model in intercollegiate athletics. It has made, uh, it, it has brought a lot more opportunities. It's brought better quality opportunities. It's brought more energy and more visibility to women in sports. Uh, it's, it's created a, a hundreds of thousands of, of, of great experiences for young women. Uh, but it hasn't changed the fundamental model that's been in place for now something in excess of 100 years. Um, and I don't know that it's reasonable to expect it to change it. It certainly hasn't made much progress. Now, has it changed how we allocate? Has it changed who's getting benefits? Has it caused uh, as many votes to rise as possible? It sure has. But it hasn't fundamentally changed the model. Can it? I think you'd gather by my comments I, I'd be skeptical of it because I don't know where that change is going to get its advocates uh, in terms of, of garnering together people who are willing and able to, to make that change happen. So, Thank you, Bob. Donna? Um, I shouldn't start by saying I disagree with everything Bob just said, <laughs> but I will. Um, and I'll, I'll get into it in, in detail. It's no question that intercollegiate athletics has an undisciplined financial model that has been uncommitted to the achievement of gender equity. It has been uh, like pulling teeth uh, to get intercollegiate athletics to do what it has done. And that I think you do have to face the maker at some point. And that will come to, to say that we can't change the model, to say that uh, we can't get an antitrust ex exemption, that uh, we should allow this growth to consider, uh, continue unfeathered, uh, unfettered and to um, to fly in the face of nonprofit uh, uh, common sense and law is a dangerous position to take. So let me step back and see if I can lay the groundwork for this. We're all engaged in commerce, both nonprofit organizations. I'm sorry. We're all engaged in commerce. Nonprofit uh, organizations and profit making organizations engage in commerce. The only difference is who gets the profit. In the case of profit-making organizations, it's the shareholder or the owner of the business that gets the money. And you pay taxes. You have to pay taxes and you're, you know, you're done in order to, for the right to engage in commerce and make money. For nonprofit institutions, the profit is supposed to go back to the cause of the nonprofit, the education of youth, uh, not into the hands of those who own the institution, you know, the president, or the football coach. And you have to start with that basic you know, understanding of nonprofit. The reason why Congress and Degrassi, uh, most specifically right now, is calling into question uh, whether or not donors should get um, uh, a tax deduction for their donations to athletic departments that pay three and four million dollars to uh, football coaches is that they sense a, um, a basic departure in 
this nonprofit model, that who is accruing the benefit? It certainly isn't the, the, the athlete whose uh, wages are depressed. Uh, it certainly uh, isn't tied to academic achievement or the other purposes of the organization. It is, uh, it is an extracurricular activity that's operating like a professional sports business and somebody saying, how come we're not taxing these guys? And, and we better hear that bell call, that red flag. And if higher education refuses to, um, to admit to this or to acknowledge that that's the case and to do something about it, I would predict that there is going to be increasing pressure by Congress and increasing efforts by women's organizations to really call this card. Um, so uh, that's, that's one point. Another point, and this is where I also have a little departure in terms of, um, you know, should you not cut men's sports? or should schools be forced to maximize participation opportunities? Should you have the broadest possible program for the, the, um, the greatest number of kids? And here's where we have to acknowledge that every single institution of higher education has a, a right to determine the kind of program it wants to offer. If Stanford University wants to be among the top 10 of all medical schools, and it doesn't want to play the game for literature or the Department of Russian or any other program on this campus. If it wants to artificially depress those programs and throw all of their money into an elitist medical school program, it has the right to do that. And a school has the right to say uh, in its athletic program, I want to be among the top 10 in intercollegiate athletics and football. And I want to be among the top 10 among all sports in programs like Stanford has, for instance, um, and to choose to have a small and elitist program. But once it creates its philosophical sandbox, right? Here's my philosophical sandbox. It cannot discriminate on the basis of sex in that sandbox. So if you want to treat football players like kings, and there's 120 of them, you better treat 120 female athletes like queens. If you want to pay, pay these coaches million-dollar salaries, and I started this conversation with Bob by saying, is Tara making a million dollars? Because she should. And so therein, so, so therein lies the rub. You know, this talk of women can do it differently. You know, oh, women, so we're going to have women have an obligation to discriminate against themselves vis-a-vis -vis our treatment of men. And we're going to say, oh, the victims of discrimination you have a responsibility to lead us down a different path when Bob says, oh no, we're not going to change this path at all. I mean, there, there is something incongruent with that kind of uh, mentality. Um, so picking the right sandbox that you can afford is key. And that's what's not happening in intercollegiate athletics, and it's in particular not happening, happening in Division I. If you look at the statistics, um, and I'll just give you, um, you know, a couple of these. Um, if you look at Division I, you have 53% of all students as women, 41% uh, of all participation opportunities in athletics are going to women, 45% of all scholarship dollars, 37% of all operating budgets, 32% of all recruiting budgets are going to women. Men's budgets are double that of women's budgets, and 70%, 73% of all men's budgets uh, in Division 1A, the, the richest of all those uh, competitive divisions, are going to two sports, football and basketball. Uh, when you look at Division uh, 2, uh, let me stay with Division 1, there are only um, 66 institutions out of 309 Division 1 institutions that are running athletic programs that are profit-making. Want me to say that again? Yes. 
66 institutions out of 309 are running programs where they're bringing in mo more revenues than they are uh, expenses. Does football make money? Damn right. Um, does it spend more than it makes? Damn right. And there are different, you know, and you look at the basketball program deficits, when you look at the football program deficits, the numbers are different, but it is a myth out there to say that we are running an intercollegiate athletic program, even at the very highest levels where you bring in big money, and these programs are uh, uh, fueling the other sport programs. Are they doing it to some extent? Yes. Are they profit-making? No. Should they be? Probably not. In higher education, you don't say to the medical school, you have to be profit-making. You don't say to the English school, you have to be profit-making. It's all a united fund. But where the, the, um, the, the dissonance comes in athletics is athletics think it, that if it makes money, it owns it. If it makes money, it goes back into athletics. Instead of it, if it makes money, it goes back to the general institutional coffer, like uh, most other sports. So it, it's that model that needs to be questioned, and, and that is going to be at the root of change, I think, um, over the next couple of years. Institutions right now can only uh, control their cost and exercise financial discipline by selecting the right competitive division. If you have limited right, uh, financial resources and you want to play the Division I-A arms race, you're dead meat. You are dead meat. And that's what's happening. We have a whole bunch of institutions who want to, who have aspirations which exceed their resources. And that's why we have so many uh, deficit programs in athletics. Um, I, I disagree uh, that we cannot use an antitrust exemption. If you talk to the top antitrust lawyers in this country, they say, one, that if co colleges and universities want an antitrust exemption, they can get it. They have to want it. And what Bob says is absolutely right. Nobody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Why? And that's the question of the next three or four years. Um, that's an anathema, that they don't want to look at it seriously, touch it, and go after it. I predict that they're going to be forced to, to ask for it. If Congress puts enough pressure on the system in terms of questioning nonprofit status for these uh, programs that are uh, paying football coaches four and five million bucks a piece, then the NCAA schools are going to be forced to respond, and they're going to be forced to ask for antitrust exemptions. Higher education has had antitrust uh, exemptions in the past. Medical schools have asked for an antitrust exemption to, in order to dictate the residencies of medical school students, a direct relationship to its purpose in education. And every college and university does have a right to gather together and to ask for one to keep athletics within its mission as part of, um, uh, of higher education. And what does that mean? It means salary caps. It does mean salary caps, and I think we can come up with a, um, a good salary cap or other uh, limited antitrust exemption model that, um, that would pass muster. But there has to be a willingness for the colleges and universities to ask for it. And if the attitude is going to be, this, nobody's going to change this model, the colleges and universities don't want it, then a war is afoot. Um, uh, just an, one, more, one or two more points, and then I'll open it uh, uh, to questions. Um, the JMU situation, you know, you've heard about this JMU lawsuit where 10 sports are dropped, 10 sports for men, uh, 3 sports for women, and, you know, nobody ever, ever asks where this money comes from. JMU, they don't make any money from football, they don't make any money from their sports. 
Uh, $17 million out of a $19 million budget comes from student fees and other institutional subsidies. And should those students have a right to raise holy hell that uh, JMU is choosing an elitist sport program that they are paying for instead of, almost wholly paying for, instead of a broad sport program that caters to the need of the largest number of students because, damn it, they're paying the bill. And they have a right to say that. And that's the, the problem with JMU. It's not the same problem as a Division I-A institution who's making its revenues off of football, not taking any student fees or other kinds of institutional subsidy, um, and making a decision to become very small, you know, very elitist. Um, I only have five minutes, but of course I have. Oh, oh, okay, uh, one more piece, right? Um, another piece of the puzzle in terms of gender equity is uh, we haven't put enough pressure on institutions of higher education to, um, to be committed to playing the marketplace for women coaches. The depression of women coach salaries, the inability to recruit women is directly related to uh, institutions' unwillingness to play marketplace. And Linda pointed this out in uh, her presentation. Um, so that when you go to hire a coach for a women's team, you'll take anybody that's within a certain salary level. Uh, you won't go, away, go and hire away the best. Like Texas, just hired Gail to be Jody Conrad's rep uh, replacement at Texas. And had to play, pay marketplace. And the top of the marketplace was Pat Summit's salary of a million dollars. That's how you, know, um, how you attract the women coach you want, or any coach you want. You, ha you have to play marketplace. You have to hire away Vivian Stringer. You have to hire away the top coaches in women's sports, and that elevates the salary um, for, um, for everyone across the board. And, and institutions are refusing to do this. The only other point I want to make in terms of this marketplace is, contrary to popular uh, thought, when women coaches are discriminated against and they go to court, um, they are winning. Almost every one of them is winning, but you don't hear about it. And they're winning six, seven-figure settlements. You're not hearing about it because there are confidential, confidentiality uh, provisions tied to those settlements. And you're not seeing more lawsuits like that because going to court is expensive and it's a bitch of a... Of a um, of a process to go through as an individual. It, it, is, it is degrading um, for coaches to have to defend their uh, being right about discrimination. Um, but we have to, to let more women know that if they do go to court, if they do stand up uh, against wrong treatment, that they are going to win. Um, that's all for now. Okay, thank you, Donna. <laughs> Well, I'm sure after those lively presentations, we have a few questions out there. You didn't disagree with everything I said. <laughs> In fact, several things I agree with you. Yeah. It was just the, the, the solution side. On the other hand, our panelists don't need questions to have some dialogue, clearly. While we're waiting for questions, um, just, just one point, the average Division 1A football coach salary today, not counting the value of any perks, right? Not counting the, the value of country club memberships, of cars, of anything, is $950,000 a year. Average football coach salary in Division 1A. Um, and 
um, an average professor uh, on 0405 standards is about 91,000. Not that the football coach matches up to an average professor. Um, uh, but it's, and, and when you think about it, the average Division I A institution is getting at least $2 million in, uh, Division I A is getting at least $2 million in, um, in student fees. Okay, put that in context. There are only um, 66 <coughs> Division I schools who are profit making. They're getting, they're only making profits of five million. The average student subsidy is two. You know, so, so they're making profits of maybe three. And then the rest of those schools, um, some, you know, 200 and some odd, uh, even more than that, I, I don't have that number at tip my, my fingers, but they are running deficits in Division 1A, the 70 schools in 1A that are running deficits are running average deficits of 4.4 million, right? So the vast majority, 60% of 1A schools, supposedly the richest, the ones that are making all the money, supporting all the other schools, they aren't. It's a myth. Okay. Deborah, did you have a question? I did. Maybe one follow-up to that last uh, point. Um, Donna, and, and your organization has been wonderful about tracking um, some of the, uh, the real numbers in terms of expenditures and, and trying to, to counteract the myths. But of course, what academic administrators will respond is that the value that uh, they get from the male revenue sports vastly um, exceeds in terms of <laughs> reputation and you know, student morale and, and so forth. So, so maybe you could reply yes, a bit to that. To. And, yeah. and, and also maybe you and Bob could each say a word more about why you think that the commission's recommendations were such a non-starter. You know, it'd be interesting to know whether um, there were some things that the commission recommended that you think are politically plausible and would make a real difference. Um, and where we, where we ought to be putting our political energy at this point, if uh, Ted said earlier, if he were king, he had a short list, I'm sort of throw it open to you members of the panel, um, maybe to give us some sense of the priorities of changes that you think are politically plausible and that would be most uh, effective. Two points. Um, a series of researchers, noted researchers, uh, have demonstrated that overall institutional contribu contributions uh, not to athletics, to non-athletic sources are not tied to the success of football teams or basketball teams or athletic programs. The second piece is, if you posit an antitrust exemption that lowers salaries, if you posit any kind of discipline on the part of NCA schools that do things like lower the scholarship limits from 85 to 55, only 43 football players get into the game on any Saturday afternoon and less than 10 in injuries keep them out of, of playing. But the fact of the matter is, if you posit those things, is, is, are the stadiums gonna be filled any less? No. Are these coaches gonna go anywhere else? No, there is no place for them to go. They're getting paid more than professional sport coaches. And, and so by, um, by taking a across-the-board action to, to control costs, nobody gains competitive advantage. And it may throw the arms race more into facilities, which is harder to control, um, but that too has its limits. Uh, we can go on about debt service and facilities being a real arms race um, danger to, to sports, but let me tell you, controlling scholarship costs and, and um, 
and salaries of folks is not going to hurt one bit 95,000 people in a football stadium or the attractiveness, perceived attractiveness to alumni. Those are fear tactics that have been thrown out to, by Division I-A schools for the last 25 years. If you don't let us do what we want in football, if you don't let these, these uh, absurd costs continue, then you're going to lose the support of alumni who are supporting the general institution, and that is a downright lie. That's right. It's not a problem, but the politics are that the BCS schools are holding the rest of the NCA membership uh, by the throat. They're, the rest of the membership is saying, we're not going to force them to do this because we're afraid they're going to leave. And then we can't get their revenues that are supporting all the other schools in the billion dollar plus largesse that is distributed to all NCA schools across the board from the NCA basketball championship monies. So it is uh, an interesting situation. Okay. Bob, some thoughts on uh, Deborah's comments? Uh, believe it or not, I agree with most of that. And I, and I, think, uh, I think if you polled uh, Sandy's and my colleagues, around the country, uh, they, would, they would all vote for uh, salary caps on athletic directors as well as coaches. Uh, there are getting increasingly to be uh, people in our positions that make uh, what I'd consider to be relatively exorbitant amounts of money. H having said all that, um, believing that, that going from 85 to 55 uh, works and that the average fan wouldn't know any different, I, I think there's I think you, you could capably argue that, and, and I have on some occasions. Um, but my conversations with Miles Brand and with university presidents who advise him is that they're not going to spend that equity uh, to, uh, to venture forth and, and, uh, and fight for that exemption. And what they have had characterized to them by some of the same antitrust lawyers is that uh, what will likely happen is that Major League Baseball will lose their exemption and nobody will gain an exemption. Um, and that's the practical reality uh, of, the, of the political environment in which all this takes place. And I, I, you know, I, think, it's, I, I think it's fine to have the philosophical uh, uh, discussion. And much of what Donna said, I think, is exactly correct. Uh, I think we, we haven't, it's not a well-run enterprise, uh, especially in certain locations. Uh, there, there have been situations where people haven't done the right things at the right time from an individual uh, judgment, uh, individual decision, decision standpoint, or from a, from a collective management standpoint. Um, but it's, it's going to be, I, I, was, I was the chair of the NCAA Management Council when we went through the restricted earnings uh, lawsuit, in which case the NCAA paid off $66 million to assistant basketball coaches who had their, their, uh, their salaries restricted. And uh, this would render infinitesimal uh, the lawsuit that, that was involved there. Uh, if we got into a similar situation. I, I just, but if you had an I just, antitrust exemption, that wouldn't be the case. But, uh, Donna, I, I just don't see it as, as, as getting there. I, I, just, I, I think it's, it's great to argue it, but I, I think when push comes to shove, there will be senators and congressmen that don't get reelected over an issue like this. And I, I, just, uh, I think we need to find other ways to do it. And I don't disagree with you that we need to reduce, flatten, do whatever we can to save money. But uh, I, I just think the antitrust exemption is a non-starter. Well, 
Okay, my well, question. And, and that's not my assessment. That's the assessment of experts in but, the field. Okay. But the Sandy. problem is, in, in my, uh, as I said, we're we're going to implode. Uh, as, yeah, and 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 uh, equity is is just one part of that. It goes back to what's what's our place on a campus. And, and Donna, I you know I think you you, you use the word discipline um, or lack thereof, and I think that that is absolutely what it is. And, and boy, what a tragedy for us as, um, and I'm, I'm part of it, us as part of a, uh, of a campus and an educational entity to, to be undisciplined. Uh, but, but back to the, the, the implosion, we're, if we don't do something, and it's what we all talk about as athletic directors, you know, what, what, what is it, what can we do? What are presidents willing to do? Because if we don't do it, Congress is, going to do something that is going to absolutely change the face of, of, of what we do. And maybe that's what we need. Maybe, maybe, that's what, maybe that's what blows it up and allows us to start over. Is that, is that the best thing? I don't know. Okay. Question over here? Um, I had a... Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Marcia, didn't I, see you. I had a question uh, about, I guess, to follow up, Deborah, on your point to some degree about, <laughs> uh, about the commission what happened with its recommendations and the overall context of the expenses for intercollegiate athletics and the finger pointing that has been going on publicly and politically that the financial pressures are really because of Title IX and the solution ultimately is not to move forward with Title IX. The way that that commission issue was presented for many of us was um, to study whether Title IX was the problem. And many of the recommendations that were non-starters from women's advocacy perspective were recommendations that would weaken Title IX. So for many, it was a very good thing that they ultimately didn't see the light of day. And of course, one did see the light of day uh, a little bit later, and here's my question on that front. That commission basically came up with its recommendations in 2004, before the elections, and ultimately the Department of Education did not accept them and went forward with the positions and interpretations of Title IX as they were. After the 2004 elections, there was a clarification issued on a Friday night during spring break with very little public attention paid to it that got to the heart of some of those recommendations to weaken the participation requirements for women under Title IX. My question is, how much do you think the future of Title IX depends on the popularity, the power, the commitment of the public, of women athletes, of administrators, and others to make sure that the spotlight is on Title IX so that it isn't turned into a scapegoat, number one, and it stays strong. Well, there's, there's a lot in there. Um, some of it, I think, is a little bit revisionist history, um, I, because I, as I mentioned earlier, the, um, 
somewhere in the low 20s of the, of the uh, recommendations were unanimously uh, adopted by the commission and, uh, and forwarded to, the, uh, to, the, to OCR and, and uh, to the Department of Education. And so uh, it, uh, about those things, there really was not, there had been a lot of conversation, but not a lot of debate. Um, what has happened since then, uh, I don't think there's any question that, uh, that there were political operatives at work in terms of the timing and, and the manner in which uh, the information that we uh, produced was used. And I, Ted and I have had that conversation as I have with a number of other commission members and um, I, I think in, in some measure uh, it contributes to the feeling that, that uh, we didn't have as much of a, a contribution as we certainly had hoped going into it because I think Ted's characterization was exactly correct. Uh, we, we did not, I, I know of no one that went in with an agenda uh, or a, a belief uh, a specific agenda or a belief that Title IX had been the problem. I, I don't. I think there. I think there are institutions that have blamed Title IX for their uh, for the discontinuation of men's sports uh, when it was was really financial, and they chose to make other uh, political decisions on their own campuses. Uh, I, I think there's been lots of discussion about it, but I but I do think there are those institutions that have have um, uh, they they've felt like they were doing the right thing. Uh, even when, in the in the grander scheme of things, uh, it would be hard to describe how it was the right thing. And I, and I think the the James Madison situation is a is a good example. I, although I I disagree slightly with Donna on it because I, I don't think students largely have input into how their student fees are spent. Uh, they do on some occasions, but at many institutions, it's just a it's just a fee you pay, and the institution decides how it's going to be spent. But uh, but I I fail to see, regardless of where the money is coming from how anybody at James Madison University wins anything. Uh, I don't think the women have won anything. I don't think the men have done anything. I, I think everyone is a net loser, including the institution. And, and so, you know, I, I just, uh, I think Title IX has been a, a scapegoat. But uh, a, as I said briefly in my comments, I just think um, Title IX for some may be the initiative, for some it may be the scapegoat. But, but we are all missing the boat if gender equity and equitable treatment is, is not part of the fabric of what we do every day. When, when Sandy and I go to work, meet with our senior staffs, put together budget, develop facility plans, and those kinds of things, it, uh, it, equity uh, needs to be the hallmark of what it is that we consider as we make decisions. And that hasn't always happened. Uh, people have gone kicking and screaming into the new day, and they haven't done the right things. And uh, and you know, the, the football has been this this behemoth that's been you know, it's like trying to turn a steamship by hand. It's it's very difficult. There's no doubt about it. But there have been some there has been some progress made. Um, the the reduction in grant and aid in football has been larger than probably the rest of men's sports combined. Could it go farther? Sure it could, but uh, I, I came away from the commission process disappointed with some of the things that were uh, subsequently implemented because I felt like when a commission does its work and it, uh, it describes uh, somewhere over 20 initiatives that are adopted unanimously, that those things ought to be put into practice. And, and I think in large measure they have not been. Now there were another six or seven or eight that are, uh, uh, were, were elements about which there was quite a lot of contention. And, you know, they were unresolved and, and that was fine. It was also a forum for disagreement. 
Back here, question. I'm Welch. I'm Welch Suggs. Oops, sorry. I'm Welch Suggs from the University of Georgia. Um, when I lecture to classes or talk to people around my campus, both faculty and grad students and undergraduates, and everyone assumes pretty cynically that college sports is a business, that it's a commercial opportunity, that players are recruited from different populations than the rest of the student body, that this really has very little to do with the educational enterprise. And with that level of cynicism, it makes it very difficult to have an honest conversation about the real educational value that participating in sports can have, and I think probably most of us in this room have experienced. And so the question for all of you all is, how can you break through that cynicism, and how can you communicate and demonstrate the educational value of competing in intercollegiate athletics? Sandy, you want to try that? <laughs> short answer. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a really short answer. I've spent 27 years trying to answer it. Um, it it's, the words you used is demonstrate. Uh, and that's exactly what we've got to, got to do. I, I've been very fortunate. The, the places that I've been, um, I believe in large part, not without hiccups, um, uh, do walk the, walk the talk. Uh, but it's exactly, we've, we've, we've got to be, uh, we've got to have educational value. We've got to fit the mission. Uh, we've got to have uh, young men and young women in our programs who are student athletes. And uh, that's not easy. It starts with your chancellor or your president in demanding that that's what goes on on your campus every day in, in this, this particular enterprise. It's, you know, you, you said it, it's really a business. Uh, and that's, I, I made that comment in, in, my, in my presentation that that's the business model, but we forget that it's not all about business. I happen to be uh, at one of those institutions that has invested uh, in its intercollegiate athletics program so that we could have a, a large and robust program. Um, we, we do receive significant institutional support uh, that allows us to, to do what we do, and I, and I think that that is demonstrating some of that, but in return, they have certain expectations that I have to, as, as the leader, I have to help meet and I have to direct others within the program to meet on a daily basis. But it is, we've got to demonstrate it instead of demonstrating that it's not. I just wanted to comment on that. Um, I've done some research on, uh, on the representation of women athletes in the media and what occurs to me when you say that and you're saying that we need to demonstrate that is that with the statistic that over 92% of all sports programming on TV is geared towards boys and men that our, our society is seeing uh, men's sports and the success and all the, you know, the publicity, the advertising dollars, you know, the hurrah. And so they're not seeing that there's an educational value and they're not seeing a balance of opportunities and success for women. And so to me it goes back to what is society, what are we teaching them and uh, what, what are we offering them and what can we do about it uh, to show them and demonstrate that benefit. I think this issue of getting data on the table is critical. Um, you know, when Dick Lapchick um, uh, really advertises the graduation rates of all of the teams going into the basketball final four, he's, he's putting measures of success, uh, and this is an answer to, to Welch's question too, on the table for all to see. And to the extent 
that uh, higher education starts uh, making available financial, graduation, um, GPA data in the aggregate, and by sport uh, for its teams, the healthier we are going to be. Because there is no question that that the start of this demise of academic standards for athletes began when institutions argued that the normal admission standards for uh, incoming athletes should be different than incoming students because I have to compete against the University of Georgia, which has lower standards for all students than me. And then it goes overboard. It goes overboard um, when then somebody um, eliminates all standards the Ivies have tried to manage this by saying you can't recruit an athlete that uh, is above or below a certain standard deviation tied to the incoming class. So they've tried to keep um, the athlete as a student you know, in some relationship to the student body as a whole uh, and have started to limit these freebie admissions um, or these preferred admissions um, um, policies. But that's not true, the large public institutions. It's, there is no discipline among the SECs and the Big Tens and the Pac Tens or um, Big Twelves or whatever to do the same thing within their, their conference. So it's a really huge problem, it's very difficult. And athletic directors find it hard to, to talk to coaches about that, to, to say, I, I know we used to have a policy at Texas that if an athlete being recruited had to come in uh, came in and did not meet the normal admission standard and had two out of three risk factors for non-graduation that, that, that recruit had to be reviewed by a faculty committee. So that's the kind of stuff that should be going on in higher education, but there's no appetite uh, at all for athletic directors to, to, to act that responsibly. Yes, no, I, and, and, and I uh, think that's one of the things that's a commonly uh, held misperception is that that there is some sort of uh, standard in aggregate for admission standards. Uh, the, that's one of the areas that has been left very much to institutional discretion. And, and as such, there's wide variance. There are major programs that has, as Donna said, have basically open enrollment programs. And then there are, there are others where students come in uh, exactly like everyone else in the, in the population. It, it's, a, it's a very difficult one. And, and uh, other, than, other than the baseline uh, uh, eligibility requirements for uh, first year aid that the NCAA put in place with, with Proposition 48 originally, uh, there, there are no standards. And, and so while we try and paint a lot of aspects of athletics with a single brush, this is one where there's, there's broad variance. Sandy? But I also wouldn't paint athletic directors with the broad brush of that, we're, that it's not something that's important to us and that we can't. I, I think at places like Stanford and, and the places that I've been, I think that's something that is really important. And there, there's recognition that graduation rates are really important and there, there's recognition that the, the, the everyday experience of the student athlete, which has to do with whether they belong there and they can compete in the classroom, um, is very important. And one of the things I've always looked at in terms of admissions, particularly at highly competitive places from, from a numbers of application standpoint, there is a difference between the admission criteria and the success criteria on that campus in terms of those, those incoming benchmarks of SAT and GPA and those kinds of things. And that's where I think the wiggle room is. Um, if I may. We had a question over here a little yeah, while yeah. ago. I'll stand up. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> 
I'm going to go. All right, I'm standing. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Anita. Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say that I believe there's no such thing as a dumb jock. They're athletes who've been miseducated to believe that all they say need to know. Say that again, Anita. I couldn't hear that. Yeah, really no sure. such thing as a dumb jock. In order to take part in sport, it, I believe it happens to use a powerful form of thought. And I think that a lot of these kids are miseducated to believe that um, sports is all they need to know and there's not time taken to educate these kids to help them understand they can know other things. But the reason I wanted to stand was to say that uh, back to why women's sports are not as interesting as men's sports. Frequently, if you're especially looking on television, it's the production value between the sports. The number of cameras used, the number of statistics that go up, and there are all these other things that it's very important to look at and comment upon. And once you get the same number of cameras, you'll find a much more interesting event. And I know that because it happens at the Olympic Games. And it's the same for both women and men at all the sports. Reactions, or shall we go to another question? Okay. Hi, um, my name is Linda Joplin. I'm the chair of the California Now Athletic Equity Committee. And I'd like to ask your thoughts on the uh, issue of headhunters that where a school contracts with a firm to provide them with a short list of qualified candidates for their a football or women's basketball head coaching position and whether that uh, skews the increase or decrease in women coaches and does things to inflate the salaries and whether there's a problem with the headhunting firms only uh, presenting coaches that they have under contract and you know I'm, I'm trying to learn more about this and I'd like your input. Bob you just hired a football coach right? <laughs> well th there there certainly are a number of different elements to it. The, 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 biggest, uh, the biggest reason the search firms have gotten a, leg, uh, a foothold is because it allows the public universities to keep the search outside of the, the realm of, of uh, public information requests. That, that has been as big a part of it as anything, is it's an opportunity to, to circumvent that. And uh, so when we hired a football coach this fall, we, did, we didn't have those issues because we're not bound by the, the same uh, disclosure requirements. But, but that's one of the biggest reasons. The, the other thing is that they, and, and there, there certainly are those who manage search firms that also double as uh, representatives for certain coaches. Uh, it, it gets to be a very inbred process and it can be pretty convoluted by the time it's all done. Uh, the, the other thing that I would say is I, I think one of the things that has been a, a very uh, um, unpositive uh, new trend is, is the trend of coaches having, having uh, uh, agents. And they, they work the marketplace very hard. They deal with anecdotal information. Uh, they, they come to you with uh, proposals that, that I would have considered one day to be outlandish. And uh, now we're we're forced to deal with them. Now, we, I, I don't uh, I don't like to deal firsthand with the agents, and usually don't. But it hasn't been a positive aspect of, of this whole salary environment, and, and I think it's uh, it's caused it's caused both individual compensation and staff compensation to uh, to uh, increase rather dramatically. But those same people are sometimes involved in the search process. And the problem is, it's predominantly men. 
that run in the, the same circle, and, and, and it has done exactly what, what Bob has, uh, has said. Um, I also think that particularly as it relates to coaching searches, um, that's my job. That's what I was hired to do, is, is put together the, the pool of candidates and, and go and recruit and, 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 uh, and sign the, the right person. Uh, I think there are a couple of issues related to whether they be Public Records Act requests or um, the other thing, and, and this, is, this is controversial in our business, but it has to do with the ability to, to contact somebody and, and contact them during their season or those kinds of things. I find that absolutely deplorable, but it is one reason why people use headhunters. There is another side to that. I was the, to my knowledge, I've been told, uh, so this, if it's not true, then I'll, the, the, I'll admonish the source, but that I was the first woman, or uh, first 1A female athletic director ever hired through a, a process that used a search firm. Uh, so I, I do, there, from my perspective, that was a little bit of a success. I was brought to the University of California by a search firm. I also believe that Lisa Love subsequently uh, was hired at Arizona State. Um, through the use of a search firm. But I think your point about kind of the, the network being the same old network being perpetuated and, and the salaries being driven up is absolutely an accurate one. Yeah, and just one more comment with that. I think it's the institution that di dictates to the search firm uh, what they want to see in a minimum pool. So to dictate diversity by gender, by race, is the obligation of, of the institution. Don't come back to me with a pool that isn't a diverse candidate pool. Uh, my question is an extension of what Welch had asked you earlier about keeping the uh, institutions in line with their educational ideals. And if you look at schools, the best schools in the country generally have the most programs. Look, look at what they do here at Stanford and look at in the Ivy League. Uh, they have quite a few programs. Uh, my question, I guess, to the panel is, wouldn't it make sense if we really want to keep the institutions honest and, and, and uh, fully integrated, keep the athletic departments fully integrated uh, into the campus to have more programs, to have more programs for everybody, men and women? Do you think there's any chance uh, that the NCAA would raise the, the minimum number? Currently, in the last, what, five years, they've been lowering the minimum number required to be part of Division One. Uh, do you think there's any chance that they would look at elevating those numbers at, at, as a, you know, across-the-board requirement? Well, it's a very interesting question, and there, there are many of us who would advocate for that. But of, of that 328 institutions that are in Division I, uh, many would, would uh, oppose that. It, it's similar to the scholarship situation. There, there have been a number of proposals through the years to raise the number of scholarships in women's basketball, in volleyball, in track and field, in some of the sports where there is, there is more interest. But the resistance comes and the, the votes fall apart from the, the mid-majors and the, and the low-level one, uh, Division I programs because when an institution like Cal or Stanford or Iowa or Ohio State has 17 scholarships instead of 15 in women's basketball, that's just two people that are going to come off the benches of those other institutions who could have been, been playing for them and are now going to be sitting on our bench. 
And so what, what, it, what seems to be a very good equity initiative uh, turns out to be something that you can't get past. And, and that really goes back to, to your question. It, you know, anything can be proposed within the NCAA, but ultimately it has to be approved by a number of governing organizations and, and adopted by the board of directors. And uh, the, even though Division 1A has the, the majority on the, on the board of directors and most of the subgroups, uh, it's, it's difficult to get uh, uh, consensus around anything like raising the minimum number because what you do uh, at, the, at the bottom line is you end up disenfranchising a certain number of institutions who are no longer going to be able to qualify as Division I institutions. What they're likely to do is instead of adding programs, they, they go seek a, another division or they, they seek another association. So, you know, it, it, I, I think it could be proposed and probably garner some support uh, in certain circles, but I'm, I'm not sure it would carry the day by the time it was all done. We, we need to get a little better data on this. I'm, I'm looking at some data that's going to come out on June the 5th, but um, it's true that Division 1A institutions, uh, these hundred some odd schools, have an average of uh, about 300 participants, but the, um, uh, when you look at the 375 Division III schools, for instance, that come in at an average of 153, uh, we need to, to look at the, the mean and medians of those because of the predominance of really little institutions in Division III. There are lots of Division III larger institutions that have programs as large as Division I-A schools that believe in this 30-sport program that, that do all this stuff. So I don't want you to leave um, thinking that it's only the richest schools that have the largest programs. The Division III institutions think athletics are important in bringing full-paying students, full-paying tuition students to their campuses, and it's at the heart of their admission and enrollment philosophies, which is why they have big programs. And even for little schools, uh, the proportion of their athletic programs compared to their total enrollment is larger than the proportion of athletic program participants to their to total enrollment. Does that make sense? And I have not seen uh, a really good analysis of that, but that's a great, um, a great thing to look at. What is the athletic participation as a proportion of total enrollment and, and to compare the two? I think we've got time for two more questions. And I've got the mic. Um, my name is Pat Jones. I'm a biology professor here at Stanford, uh, also vice provost for faculty development and diversity. I'm a big supporter of Stanford athletics and especially our student athletes. We have a terrific program with terrific student athletes. I'd like to get back to the point, I think a little bit pre similar to the previous question, but also to Donna's comment and other comments about the importance of data as to the value of participating in intercollegiate athletes. I was a intercollegiate athlete at a very small school many years ago, pre-Title uh, IX, um, and I think it had a very um, profound effect on my career as somebody who started out very shy but has since risen to higher levels uh, in higher education. And I think that it's very important to point out the educational value of participation in intercollegiate athletes as it relates to the institution's mission. As teachers and as educators, we're trying not only to teach biology or to teach English or to teach engineering, we also want to help in personal development and developing leadership abilities, and I think participation in athletics helps to do that. 
In terms of data, it seems to me that some months ago I answered a survey that somebody, maybe back east, maybe somebody in this room, sent out to either professors at institutions of higher education or to academic leaders asking about our possible involvement in inter intercollegiate athletes and to what extent that they may have contributed to our um, rising up in our, in our own fields. I don't know if anybody knows about that survey or its status, but I would hope that that will provide one source of data that we can all use to communicate the value of supporting intercollegiate athletics in general and especially opportunities for women. And I think the more of that actual firm data showing that this is part of the educational programs at our institution, not just worth doing because we need equity and everything that the boys do, the women have to do as well. I think that will, that will help all of us. And I would hope that there are resources and opportunities for such data to become broadly distributed uh, for us all to use. Um, uh, if you want to give cards, uh, there's two documents. The Coalition for Women and Girls in Education is coming out on May 10th with a huge report uh, that addresses all of these questions and gathers all the most recent NCA data, um, all, all kinds of data. And I'll send you an electronic copy if you want it. Uh, the, um, this is the National Coalition for Women and Girls in Education, ncwge.org. Uh, is that right, Marcia? Right, yeah, that's it. Uh, so it'll be posted on their site, too, I believe. And then the Women's Sports Foundation, John Cheslock at the University of Arizona is going to come out with the most comprehensive uh, study of participation over 1,800 institutions, including NJCAAs in the four-year schools, on June the 5th. Um, and you can get that uh, on womensportsfoundation.org for sure, or like I said, give me a card and I'll email you. Uh, Judy to Donna. Okay, provide. I'm sorry, somebody responsible for the study is back there. <laughs> um, wearing my other hat, I work part-time for the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, and the study to which you're referring to is sponsored by the Knight Commission and is being done by the University of Michigan Center on Post-Secondary and Higher Education on faculty uh, interest in level of engagement with concerns about intercollegiate athletics. Um, this is in preparation for a summit that we're having on issues involving faculty intercollegiate athletics that will be in October this year. So if you have any other questions about that, please see me. Okay. I think we've got time for one quick question. And uh, we've got someone with a microphone over here already. <laughs> so go ahead. Hi, I'm Sarah Arns, and I am newly employed at Stanford over the past year, and I feel very fortunate to be at a school where there definitely is the broad-based programming. And I, I want to really thank the panel, especially for the practical side that you guys have given, and of course the philosoph philosophical discussion we've had today. Um, my question really goes back to, Don, I really I love your philosophical sandbox idea, and I'm a huge advocate for broad-based programming, and especially your idea of the congressional pressure to help cultivate this change. And my question really surrounds how do we cultivate that collective action because it takes a collective initiative. And I think collectively we often fall back to the NCAA. It's already an established association. But as Bob just demonstrated, it's really hard to get those kind of ideas through the councils and through the management and through the governance structure to where you see that change. So I guess my question is, we always fall back to that division one model of this business push and this basketball revenue generation and football re revenue generation philosophy. How do we, who do we go to to get to the broad-based push and philosophy? How do we get those values if we can't get them through the NCA structure? 
Well, it all comes back to data, and uh, there is interest on the part of a subcommittee in Congress now on the nonprofit issue in Division 1A. So it's getting them the right data and showing a model of salary cap and what the result of such a limited antitrust exemption might be to, um, and, and to suggest that higher education is, um, is ignoring that what this would do to advance their educational uh, mission, it's that kind of stuff that's gonna put pressure on the system. And I think Bob's right, it has to be outside pressure because right now there, uh, there's no inclination for the leadership of the NCA, which is 1A dominated or division one dominated by nature um, to assemble the right message in terms of an antitrust exemption or to do the homework on what it would do to, to Title IX equity or to, um, to really relieve the budget pressure. This is a completely different animal than Major League Baseball. To, to say that Major League Baseball shouldn't have gotten an antitrust exemption is true. To suggest that the Congr uh, Congress would never support if it had its choice to do it again, that's true. But to suggest that Congress would not give relief to a request from all colleges and universities to control what everybody knows is an abuse of uh, nonprofit status, Congress would be responsive. And in, in our talks with Congress, with antitrust lawyers, there is no question that that is a viable request if the colleges and universities want it. Yeah, Final and, and I think just one more thing about the compensation, and I, and I do, I, I think Donna's comments are right on target. The 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 compensation of coaches in a wide variety of sports has been the soft underbelly of this whole operation for a very long time. It it goes back to the conversation about compensation for student athletes. Uh, I happen to believe that we're involved in in a, in an education based organization. Uh, enterprise and that we would be we would be very poorly advised to establish an employer employee relationship between the, the an institution and student athletes if you don't want to be here to get an education and as a, a part of your education be part of a, an intercollegiate athletics program then there are professional options available to you and, and that's what you should do but the compensation of coaches uh, in the extreme um, is is certainly uh, cutting completely diametrically opposed to, to that. And uh, we're, we're vulnerable on a whole variety of fronts, not the least of which are funding issues within the program. And so th there, there are a number of different angles from which you can go at the compensation issue, which is, is clearly a runaway train. And, and it's, uh, while there aren't very many that make three and a half or three or two and a half million dollars, uh, the, the, the people that do certainly drive the averages up and uh, the, the average salary is, is uh, in football, men's basketball, uh, women's basketball is getting there. I mean, that, that's one of the unfortunate aspects of certain, certain sports on the men's side and on uh, some on the women's side is uh, some of the sports have taken on some of the negative, uh, the negative uh, elements of, of men's sports. And, uh, the uh, addition of agents and things like that on uh, in women's basketball particularly is, is one of them, in my opinion. Okay, obviously this is an exceptional panel with some exceptional professionals. I'd like to thank them all for their <laughs> presentations.
I'm sure questions can continue on during lunch, but thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.